Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. My name is Phil. If you don't know me, um or have only seen me on the TV. I have been part of uh, Vineyard 61 for seven years now. Once again, I was talking to someone before the service, and if you delete the COVID years, and it's like five. So it's sort of, you know, it doesn't feel like seven years, but it's in seven years. Um, and yeah, when I know I'm, I'm stepping in because someone is um, unfortunately unwell, um, but it just seemed like a wonderful opportunity for me to come. And I, what I want to do this morning, really, as part of our summer in the... Uh, Summit in the Psalm series, um, is just share some bits, something of myself. Um, it's a psalm I'm going to share, Psalm 131. It's only three verses long, so, which is helpful for keeping to time. Um, but yeah, it's something, it's, I'll tell you a little, a little of the background in a moment, but it's something I've been praying with, meditating with. It's been very powerful for me for 20 years now. Um, and so I just wanted to share that with you, um, offer it to you as something that might be helpful to you or affirmative to you or challenging for you. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. So as I said, by way of introduction, let me tell you a little of kind of my kind of backstory, personal story, which is relevant to why I've chosen this psalm um, before we get into the psalm. Um, one way to start is I was having lunch with, with Viv a few weeks ago, and she sort of asked this rhetorically because she knows me very well. But she said, you never stop thinking, do you? And I was like, no, Viv, I never stop thinking. Um, and I have always been someone who just constantly, there are things going through my mind, usually multiple things going through my mind at the same time. Um, uh, one way of putting this is a few years ago before my, my grandmother passed away, we used to go and visit her and uh, sit and just talk a bit about life. And she just stopped and said, you really do like carry the weight of the world on your shoulders, don't you? And it's, that's quite like piercing when it comes from someone who's known you for that long. And I was like, yeah, yeah I do. Um, and then again, slightly more positively side of that, at my, at my wedding, my two brothers were my best men. And I don't know if any West Wing fans in the room, but the West Wing is our family TV show. Uh, and there's a line in it they put in, in, the, in the best uh, men's speech where the wife of the president in the TV show, it's about American politics, uh, Abby Bartlett, she says to the president, she says, sometimes you forget you don't have the power to fix everything, but we do love watching you try. And I was like, wow, you really got that from <laughs> growing up with me? But again, it, it, you know, it, it says something of how people have, have watched me from afar as well as how I felt. And there's a lot of good about what this gives me. I really feel very grateful to God for the gift of the mind particularly he has given me. Um, and they bring all sorts of good things to people around me, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, more amusingly, perhaps, um, this concerns people, so don't be too worried. But when I, I, I cycle around London from time to time, not always, um, and I actually have to listen in one ear to a podcast, and people say, surely that's dangerous. I'm like, no, if I don't listen to anything, I will switch off and go into my brain, and it will be less safe. <laughs> so people can't find that. That's just a symbol of how much my mind will go all over the place, and actually it's safer for me to listen to something in an ear than it is not. Um, and then and, and the last thing I wanted to be very open about and share, and again, really, as we move into the psalm in a moment, is, is my mind is the, most, is the reason why I have to be extremely vigilant with my own mental health. 
I'm sure this will resonate with some people in the room, but I, I've struggled with in the past and still can struggle with anxiety, periods of, of depression and low mood, and I'm kind of fortunate in one sense that's not necessarily because I've had a lot of trauma difficulty in my life, but it's because of my hyperactive thought life can go in all sorts of bad directions if I'm not very careful, careful with it. So as I said, why, why did I want to give you, share you some of these things? All of that is because this time I'm going to share Psalm 131 uh, was something when I was 18 or 19, I remember my dad said, hey, this is a psalm. We've only had one story of a father passing something down to us this morning. But he, he said, here's a psalm that I think you might really value. And I remember, I remember where I was, in fact, when I first read it. Um, and I know I look younger. But that was 20 years ago. So I have been praying with the psalm. It's the, probably, the, probably the first scripture I memorized apart from John 3.16, when you're forced to memorize it as a child. Uh, but it's probably the first sentence, and it helps only three verses, which is great. Um, but I memorized it, I've been praying with it, I've been going to it, it's a really source of strength for me. So this morning what I want to do is I want to run through it a bit with you, offer you some of my personal explorations and meditations of it, um, and, and offer it to you as something that you might find valuable. How does that sound? Yes. Great. So, let me, let me read it. If you want to open your Bibles, if you have one, it's Psalm 131. Um, I'm going to read it together. We're going to read it out loud. And we can read it together. I um, invite you, if you want to, close your eyes to hear it, listen to, or have it on the screen, whichever's comfortable. But the thing I would just say is, remember, this is a piece of poetry. This is a piece of creative writing of art. This is how this was originally written and has been used down the centuries by uh, those in our faith. So I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. And it says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quietened my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forever. Amen. So, I'm going to start by just talking you through, there are two images the psalmist is using in this piece of poetry. Uh, a psalm we're told is written by David, and he, he, we're going to work through these and then I'll share kind of where, where I've got from this. The two images are these. One, you've got the lofty-minded, kind of very self-confident individual, and then you've got the wean child, the lofty-minded, self-confident individual, um, and the wean child. So the lofty-minded uh, individual is in kind of verse one. Uh, he or she is very self-confident. As the psalmist says, their heart is lifted up, kind of indicating pride. There's another translation, um, which I also quite like, that says, my heart is not haughty which is quite a powerful, emotive word. Um, and they're seeking to think of and achieve all sorts of things beyond their imagination. They're, they're operating a lot of control, seeking a lot of control in their life and how they understand the world. And again, in their mind, they're occupied. I really like that word picture of someone camping out in or kind of making a home in these complexities, these wonders, these marvellous things about the world that we live in that God has made. Now, none of those things are bad, and we'll come to that in a moment. But in this context, initially, the psalmist is making it clear that this is not a helpful thing for them. Because when he contrasts it in verse 2, he says, I have stilled and quietened my soul. So what the psalmist is saying, in other words, is this first individual who is very confident, uh, is very seeking their own understanding and putting themselves in that, 
and grappling with these uh, big questions has somehow put them as core to their deepest self. And the contrast to stilled and quietened is restless and full of shouting voices. I don't know if that sounds like a familiar mental state <laughs> to any of you, but it's certainly one familiar to me. So that's our first image, this high-minded, lofty, thinking individual. And then the second we have is of a weaned child. Now, in case it's not obvious, I don't have a lot of experiential expertise in weaning a child. Um, I, was, I was doing the prep on this and goes, oh gosh, it's one of those times when you're going to have to speak about something, you have no idea what you're talking about from an experiential point of view. So I'm going to stick to the safe ground and talk about it from what I think the psalmist was using this image for rather than the actual day-to-day -day reality of weaning a child. Um, but... Um, I knew this would happen. I was asked if I wanted the pages either side, but yeah, we're on page four now. Um, so the most helpful thing, biblically speaking, um, is that a wean child in, in the scriptural times, in the time this was written, kind of marked a celebration or a marking that the child had come through early childhood, through the highest risk of death, and had the first semblance of independence from its mother. Um, we've got two examples of this in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. The first one we can see is Genesis on the, on the screen behind me. is Genesis 21.8, where Isaac, which is um, Sarah and Abraham's child of the promise, um, becomes weaned, and what they do in response is throw a feast to celebrate. So again, that's just a marker that there's something has happened for this child that they're really confident, a bit more confident now that this child is going to survive their young years. Second example, again, just as a, as a sociological observation, is in 1 Samuel 1, where we have Samuel's mother, if you know the story, Hannah, she uh, is, is unable to have a child, and God promises her a child, and she says, I will give that child back to your service. And we can see at what point does Hannah then offer Samuel into God's service is at the point of being weaned. So Samuel stays with his mother until he is weaned, and then he goes into the service of the temple. Um, as far as I can understand, the scholars aren't totally sure what age this would be. It's certainly older than we would wean our children today, but ballpark maybe kind of the three to five years old. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a three to five-year-old child who has been weaned off uh, her mother's uh, milk. Um, so they're the two images we've got uh, that the, the psalmist is contrasting. So what is about this contrast that has personally helped me? What do I think the psalmist is trying to communicate to us about these two contrasting images. And there's just two things um, I'm going to talk you through about these 20 years, I said, of taking a lot of power and strength from this psalm. And the first one it has taught me and continues to teach me is that I can choose a relationship of unknowing uh, over a relationship of understanding in relation to my God. And it teaches me that I can choose a relationship of presence over a relationship of provision. I can choose a relationship of unknowing over a relationship of understanding, and I can choose a relationship of presence over a relationship of provision. So let's look at that first one, that relationship of unknowing over a relationship of understanding. The line in the psalm that has always resonated most with me, um, I, I just like it when scripture has unusual words that we don't use very often in our modern language, is that, that line, the first line where it says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me, because marvellous is just a, is a great word. And I really enjoy that word partly because in in, even in this, the context of this language, it's not a negative word. It's a very positive word. 
Some of you might know Psalm 139 that talks about us being fearfully and wonderfully made. It's the same word as wonderful. So this is a very positive word. This is not talking explicitly in this moment about anxieties or things we shouldn't think about. It's talking about really good things that are, we're called to, I would say, to think about, to grapple with, to talk to one another about. But, um, and therefore, what is powerful for me is it's not saying just stop thinking. These things are not important. You shouldn't worry about these things. It's saying how do you handle those things, these marvelous, these great things. And for me, and I suspect many of you, the Christian life we live, the world we live in, has a lot of marvelous things. Um, on one level, there's the theological. Um, there's in what way is God sovereign? In what way is God all-powerful? Um, and at the same time, there is in what way can we believe God is good when there is suffering in our lives and the world around us? You know, how is God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time? These are all wonderful mysteries that are good to think about, but actually... Um, are marvellous, but actually we can get very occupied with. Um, another theological one, which I was going to do quickly with the room, is growing up, I had a wonderful friend called Nick, and he had this kind of, um, I mean, it's an amusing theological question of, given God is all-sovereign, all-powerful, can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? <laughs> Think about it. Can <laughs> Can God create a rock so heavy that even he can't lift? I was going to do a show of hands, but I might not do that one. But if you think, like, honestly, it's impossible to answer that question. But um, so there's, there's, there's wonderful theological stuff that I personally do find a lot of value in thinking about, but again, can go too far. But then there's a, there's a societal, societal things. One thing, personally, I'm grappling with in my mind right now is what, as a Christian, what as a church, we should be doing about the climate situation. What is fair? What is our responsibility? Where does God want us to be? Where is God in that? I think that's something important to think about and at the same time not something to overwhelm us. Um, and there's all the personal stuff, which are important questions. What does God want in my life? How can I help my family be financially secure in the future? How can I look after my parents as they age? These are important questions. They're marvellous things. They're wonderful things that I think God wants us to talk about. But what the psalmist speaks to me about these things is if I occupy myself with them, if I camp out in them, if I demand to myself and to God to fully understand them, if I use up all my energy, which unfortunately I still do too much, trying to solve them, then it just sends me into various states of, or can do anyway, anxiety and despair. So then how does the weaned child, so that's the high and lofty individual in this psalm, how does a weaned child handle these things differently? How has that image taught me so much about handling this situation in life? And I'll put it simply this way, it's shown me by knowing there is someone greater who does understand these things, and knowing that great person loves me and cares for me. By understanding there's someone who is greater who does understand those things, and there's someone, that greater person also loves me and cares for me. So for the wean child in this image, that greater person is the mother. And the way the child knows the mother cares for them is because of all those years giving of herself to feed and raise that child. Uh, I've been around enough friends and family and whatnot with young babies to know that when a baby goes to someone strange, which apparently is usually me, <laughs> it's very disconcerting and often, you know, induces a, a cry for help. 
But when, <laughs> yeah, that says a lot about me. And when does that cry disappear? It disappears as soon as the child is back in the arms of the mother or the father. And what I really like about that comparison image, it was, I don't think there's a rational process per se in that child. The child just knows from experience that that is a safe place. And for me, and I would say for us, that greater person is, of course, God. And that core reason I know God loves me and cares for me and us is because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And again, similarly, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they don't answer all my questions. They don't give me a full understanding of those things that can vex me and cause me to be anxious. But what they do tell me in very layperson's language is someone with a heck of a lot of power is at work for our good, and that person clearly knows a lot that I don't. <laughs> That's incredibly reassuring. And that person loves me more than I can understand. And so, similar to the psalmist, I have spent those two decades continually when I need to, sometimes more than others, making that choice. And it is a choice. It is not easy to make that choice. That I can choose a relationship with our God that involves an element of unknowing rather than an element of understanding. So that's the first thing I wanted to, to share with you. And then the second thing I think this psalm has taught me so much is how to choose a relationship of presence over a relationship of provision. How do you choose a relationship of presence over a relationship of provision? And it was a very simple but powerful observation uh, offered to me when I first read the psalm uh, all that time ago that the key thing about the weaned child that I touched upon a minute ago is that they're actually no, they no longer need to come to their mother for food for survival. That kind of stage has passed. That's part of the biblical use of this image. And so what that means is this weaned child image is saying that the psalmist is intentionally coming to God as a weaned child to its mother marked by voluntary desire rather than a self-directed agenda to be fed. It's a voluntary desire to be in that relationship, to be with its mother, than that instinctive, self-focused need to be fed. Now, I need to make sure I'm not mis misspeaking here. Neither me nor the psalmist are saying we do not need God, uh, that we are self-sufficient from God. The rest of Scripture and Jesus are very clear that all of us are made for union with God, and we need his forgiveness and Holy Spirit for that connection. But what the psalmist is communicating, I believe, is this attitude of desiring God for who he is, not simply what we can get from him. Desiring God for who he is and not simply what we can get from him. It's about agendas. I think more pointedly for some of us in more day-to-day -day terms, do we pray more often when we need something, or just because we want to spend time with God. There's no judgment in that, but I think it's a helpful sense check of where, where we are from time to time on that spectrum. Um, uh, some of you might know, because I mentioned it uh, from, from time to time, that I spent the last three years training as something that's called a, a spiritual director, which essentially is it's a Christian ministry of learning to sit well with people, to listen well with people, to help them discern where God is and what God is doing in their lives. It's a, it's a privilege. I absolutely love doing it. But while part of that training, one thing I've been uh, exposed to is just the breadth of um, tradition, of Christian spirituality, what it means, what it can mean to do daily life in union with God. 
And personally, one of the most transformative things about my personal prayer life has been learning more about this thing that's called contemplative prayer um, and a particular prayer practice called centering prayer. Um, And centering prayer essentially is a way of doing prayer um, that is trying to say, um, well, it is rather than bringing our words and filling our minds with thoughts when we come to God, but actually learning to simply sit in the presence of God. Uh, Thomas Keating, who writes a lot about centering prayer, and if afterwards this interests you, I can recommend a, a really helpful and practical book about this way of praying. He describes this kind of prayer like this. It's not a way of turning on the presence of God. It's a way of saying, here I am, and the next step is up to God. It's not a way about turning on the presence of God, but it's a practice of saying, here I am, and the next step is up to you. Now, of course, this isn't actually uncommon to us. Um, And in fact, I've mentioned this to Rachel already. One of the songs we sang this morning was all about that, talking about the presence is all we need. Um, And yeah, as at V61, some of our sung worship has these periods of time where we wait on God. Um, I do think sometimes it's interesting that sometimes there could be a subtext that we're waiting on God for him to do something and give something to us, which, again, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think there's a subtlety for me personally. This, this practice of, of centering prayer is about simply just being in the presence of God for no gain at all, apart from being with God. And I think when I look back at this, this is something I've only been learning and practicing for the last sort of, three years or so, I can see the kind of foundation of this was set for me in this psalm. Because I think this kind of prayer, this, this wordless being in the presence of God, is most powerfully an imaged in this poetry of Psalm 131 of the weaned child with its mother. The purpose is not to get anything else. The, the child is there simply because it wants to be there. And again, there's not saying this is a better way to pray. There is no right and wrong way to pray. If you're connecting with God, then that is what prayer is. But this is an intentionally different form of prayer that tends to bring a different growth in us, in our transformation into becoming like Jesus, because it enables us to practice what this psalmist is doing in Psalm 131. And my own journey with this kind of prayer over these three years that I mentioned has really deepened and expanded both my inner connection with God, but also increasingly how I live out that faith. What's really powerful for me right now um, is I can, for example, after three years of practicing this, I can sit on a bus and just find myself more aware of that connection with God right there and then. And that means a huge amount to me especially if some of these things are flying around my brain. I've strengthened that muscle to be able to just sit there and be like, I'm just going to sit in the presence of God, even if it's for 30 seconds, and I can find that more, more quickly. And as I said, I look back on it now, I really do think this psalm set that scene for me. Because what it enabled me to seek for and want to build is this relationship of presence rather than primarily a relationship of provision. So that's what I said, my, my core testimony of, of this psalm, what it's done for me, how I understand this, ta- this psalm, how it helps me grapple with my sometimes restless and busy mind, choosing this relationship of, of unknowing and of presence. So I invite Rachel back up with one, one final observation. And what's interesting about this observation is this one only came to me looking at the psalm afresh in the last couple of weeks. 
And again, I think that's testimony that the more time, especially with something like the Psalms, the more time you spend there, the more riches that, that come out, perhaps, perhaps for a season. So this last thing I just wanted to observe is kind of, it was simply this, is I was trying to think, how, how can the psalmist say these things? How is the psalmist able to make this comparison and live this way? And it's simply this, the psalmist could make his soul feel like a weaned child because he believed that the character of God was like a loving mother. Or put more simply, the psalmist's relationship with God is formed from the image of who God is. The psalmist's relationship with God is formed from the image of who God is. So here was my kind of open invite to to you this morning, was to consider maybe who is God to you? And what image comes to mind when you think of God? There might be multiple, there's no wrong answer. But what I think the psalmist is teaching us is that that's really fundamental to how we are going to then relate to God. And it's important here, it's not necessarily the same answer as what does the Bible say about the image of God, which is a powerful and important answer and place to go for truth. But if we want to internalize this, it's how does my life, what does my life and my choices say about how I see God? I've learned that those kind of spiritually wiser and more on the journey than me will know that question is an important one to keep thinking through our whole Christian life. But I think this psalm definitely tells us that it has huge consequences for how we do relate to God. So let me pray, and then I'll hand to Rachel to lead our response. Father, thank you for who you are. We thank you for the revelation of your love, of your compassion in the person of Jesus. Thank you that we can relate to you as a a loving father, as a loving mother, as a sovereign God. Spirit, we pray that this morning and over this next weeks and months, just show us again who you are. Not who we think you are, but who you really are. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.